0: What we found is the whole representation of what is happening is a lie. The US government is representing to the public that this is a health event, but in fact, this is a military operation.
1: In this episode, I sit down with former pharmaceutical executive Sasha Latipova, She emerged from retirement during the COVID pandemic to become a whistleblower after she observed the government and vaccine manufacturers veering away from established clinical research and public health protocols.
0: The total volume of adverse events and deaths was higher than all the previous vaccine products combined. We have all kinds of levels of consumer protections that should be triggered with this picture long before this extent of injury has occurred, yet none of them were triggered. The government was able to commandeer pharmaceutical companies to produce these non-compliant
1: injectable products and distribute them. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Janja Kelleck. Before we start, I'd like to take a moment to thank the sponsor of our podcast, American Hartford Gold. As you all know, inflation is getting worse. The Fed raised rates for the fifth time this year and Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is telling Americans to brace themselves for potentially more pain ahead. But there is one way to hedge against inflation. American Hartford Gold makes it simple and easy to diversify your savings and retirement accounts with physical gold and silver. With one short phone call, they can have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401 k American Hartford Gold is one of the highest rated firms in the country. With an A rating, with a better business bureau, and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they'll give you up to $2,500 of free silver and a free safe on qualifying orders. Call 855 862 3377. That's 855 862 3377 or text American to 65532. Again, that's 855 862 3377 or text American. To 65532. Sasha Latipova, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders.
0: Uh, hi, Jan. Thank you very much for inviting me.
1: Well, I've been watching you talk about some very troubling things mm-hmm. over the past months. You've become, a, I guess, I don't know if it's officially, but a kind of a whistleblower. Of course, this is in the realm of COVID genetic vaccine manufacturing. What is it that you saw that made you start wondering that there was a, some kind of problem happening?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I became aware of this, um, I would say, uh, strangeness with the, with the whole con- COVID pandemic response very early on because um, I, I worked in the pharmaceutical industry and I had retired before COVID started. I sold my companies and I was enjoying a great life and spending time with my family and, and doing hobbies and traveling. But uh, when COVID started, I was initially concerned, like everyone was. We didn't know what it was. We didn't know the illness. Uh, But I became uh, suspicious when uh, the health authorities started an overt campaign against hydroxychloroquine, which I knew was a uh, safe drug because I'm from the industry, I had familiarity with it, looked specifically into the issue that they were falsely assigning to it, which is QT prolongation and arrhythmias associated with drug-induced QT prolongation. It happened to be the area of focus of the company, the last company that I had and worked in pharma, and I knew that what they were saying about this drug was absolutely not true, and more importantly, the regulators knew perfectly well that they were, Saying things that have, that were not true, so that gave me a pause immediately, and I started thinking. Well, I mean, they are professionals; they know this issue, they know this data. Yet they're saying things that are not true, and that led me to start questioning the whole thing. You know, if if you catch an official, a professional lying about something, you know, straight to the public, uh, what else are they lying about? And so that kind of started my whole investigation into it and also i i was familiar with the a little bit familiar not very deeply but i did come across this mrna class in the past in in my professional work when um, these products were in development for other different things very severe conditions such as cancer for example and i knew that these products were uh, inherently dangerous which is not unusual in the pharmaceutical research and development. We frequently work on things that are you know they' are risky, uh, that can be toxic, such as chemo agents, for example, they are toxic. But you, you know there is application for all sorts of things and and you know the the risk benefit profile is always a, a consideration. And so I knew that these products were inherently dangerous, inherently toxic. They were developed as a as a cancer products in the past, yet all of a sudden our regulators were all gung-ho about, oh, these are going to be prophylactic vaccines. Uh, They're going to be given to children, pregnant women, uh, everyone, regardless of their health status, age, or risk profile uh, with regard to COVID. So that gave me yet another pause. And um, so I just became extremely suspicious about this whole situation, and that's how I started looking into it.
1: Fascinating. Well, no. So, tell me a little bit about your background. You said you sold your company. Mm-hmm. So, you were what? What exactly were you doing, and how did you get into it?
0: Uh, yeah. Well, I'm 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 originally in Ukraine. I grew up in the Soviet Union. I uh, worked um, in uh, you know while while I was still in Ukraine, I was I worked in uh, uh, industries that contracted for health and IT, um, and I also. Did a bunch of international translations of documentation and in negotiations of companies that are coming into the uh, into the market right after the Soviet Union uh, collapse. So I had some familiarity with the topic. I came to study in, in um, the United States uh, for my business degree, for graduate degree. And I, Uh, Also went to work for pharmaceutical industry right from the start. I worked in various capacities and eventually started my own several businesses I co-founded and uh, they were all successful. And the last one, as I said, was uh, actually focused on cardiovascular safety testing in pharmaceutical research and development, looking at electrocardiograms, looking at QT prolongation, you know, the, the, the issue that they were assigning to hydroxychloroquine falsely. Uh, and so um, you know so that that work is it's a it's, co- it's co- called contract research organization um, which is a very broad term there are a variety of contractors just think of if you if you want to build a very large and very complicated house how many contractors you're going to hire well it's kind of like that so we are involved in a variety of different specialty tasks um, and a variety of companies are working toward you know, fulfilling these, these projects, clinical trials. That's what, that was my work. And then, you know, ultimately the companies were successful. I sold the last one and I didn't need to work anymore. So I was just, you know, having a good time.
1: (laughs) So, and so you were involved deeply in clinical trials. Mm -hmm. That's, That's what I want to establish um, from many different angles
0: Right. So the last one was cardiovascular safety testing in humans. Uh, Previous ones dealt with um, oncology, imaging studies, arthritis. I actually worked in all therapeutic areas. My clients were a variety of pharma companies, large ones and small ones, uh, Pfizer included. Pfizer was also uh, our um, research and development partner. So we were developing technologies that they were interested in, in applying in their clinical trial space to to make it, you know, more precise data collection, more accurate, more reliable. Um, So partnered with Pfizer several times, worked with large large companies, GSK, Novartis, AstraZeneca, Johnson, Johnson, and a variety of small, we call them biotechs. Um, So I was very familiar with the space.
1: And then what about this uh, manufacturing side of things? Mm -hmm. You know, for most of us, this is kind of a black box. You just assume it's done and it's done right. Exactly.
0: Yeah. <laughs> exactly, so that, that's, that's a very big issue uh, that people often don't appreciate. Um, the, the whole FDA regulation actually, it's, it, it's, um, it hinges on the good manufacturing practice regulation. So all they're regulating is the compliance of the manufacturers with essentially what manufacturer claims about their product and what they claim on the label it needs to be true and needs to be reproducible in every pill, every bottle, every vial, every everything that the manufacturer ships. So, in the United States and worldwide, and in especially in developed countries, we have um, laws that are similar. In the United States, it's called Good Manufacturing Practices. It's extensive, extensive set of laws. Um, it governs everything: the, the raw materials, the impurities, the potency, the, the contaminants. Um, you know, so it's an extremely complicated. Um, Structure that every participant of this industry has to comply with parts of or entirely. If you are, you know, if you are selling a drug in the United States, then you're responsible for your own compliance with all of it, including all your vendors' compliance with all of it. Uh, and um, you know, so so it's so. Compl- I had to comply with parts of this as a as a business owner of a contractor that was performing work for Pfizer. Uh, And we knew how difficult, how extensive, how tight, everything is regulated. That's what people don't really understand. It's majority of the entire industry is engaged in some ways in compliance with these rules. And so that's, that's extremely important to know and it's extremely important to follow. Um, it, you have to prove that the product has, you know, certain ingredients and in certain quantities. And again, as I said, they're present in every single dose of the product. So that's why, that's why I, I, I was always focused on this because I knew how, how important it is. So
1: you started digging around, you noticed mm-hmm. that things weren't quite
0: mm-hmm.
1: maybe what they seem. So where did, where did you start looking? Where did you start mm-hmm. finding problems?
0: Yeah. So, the, as a, in addition to you know looking at what the, what was happening with hydroxychloroquine, um, I became suspicious once the mRNA products started coming on the market. Uh, obviously, um, you know there was a lot of reports of adverse events and deaths, which I was expecting, as I as I said, you know I, I knew this product was inherently dangerous, uh, and uh, and I knew that you know there's it's just going to be a lot of problems. And there's VAERS data database, CDC maintains various database. And there are some others in, in, uh, in the UK, there's yellow card and utero uh, vigilance in Europe and all kinds of other databases. They all started showing huge numbers of adverse events and deaths right away. And um, the government was denying that those were associated, denying that they're happening, and they continue denying to this day.
1: So, I briefly want to discuss VARES because I had never heard of this mm-hmm. until basically this pandemic. Mm-hmm. And the way we were taught about VARES, I mean, the general public, mm-hmm. right, uh, early on, was that this was some kind of poor system that shouldn't really be trusted because, mm-hmm. you know, because it's just self reporting. Mm-hmm. I mean, roughly, that's I remember learning it about that, and then kind of being shocked to learn that that's not how it was considered in the past. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so maybe just tell me about that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So this is very interesting because when the, depending on uh, when you ask um, CDC officials about VAERS, it's either a, an amazing uh, bulletproof system that is so reliable and they always, uh, you know, maintains this this wonderful data set for them to monitor safety, or it's completely poor and reliable and Usually the reports are made up. It just depends on how they want to answer the question, right? So, but historically, before COVID and before it got so uh, contentious, the, the historically it was considered a fairly reliable database, and it's actually a, a very important database. And while they're saying, well, it, it's 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 not it, it's not definitive if a report shows up for something that it was caused by this product. But it's a very, even on their website, it says, it's an an important early warning system to identify unusual data patterns. And that's how I was using it. I was using it exactly for that purpose. I wanted to look at the data pattern that was coming across. Um, the first immediate finding was that um, the, the the volume, the total volume of adverse events and deaths, was uh, you know tens of tens tens time ten times and more higher than all the previous vaccine products combined. And the database is very old. It's it's um, I think it was started in the 90s, and it has um, reports for about. 90 or so, maybe close to 100 different vaccine products, from you know hundreds of manufacturers. So you have a very rich data set, and you see that historically it's you know it's here, and then 2021 comes across, and it's this. So of course it's a signal. It's undeniable. There's a signal. <laughs> it's a pattern. You know it needs to be investigated, but no investigation ever happened.
1: Well, we heard we we, we heard that. It's, they can't find a signal. I've, I've, I've interviewed a number of people who've spoken directly
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, with the FDA NIH, and IHS so over the team. We're just not seeing any signal here.
0: Mm-hmm. So that was a that was a signal for me, them not seeing the signal. Mm-hmm. Because if you have government officials um, staring at a very loud signal and telling you there is no signal, that's a signal in itself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was a big question. To me, that, that was, um, for a long time, I could not understand how they were able to do this, how they were able to deny the reality with a straight face and nothing would happen and nobody would be uh, in trouble or investigated or prosecuted while we have this very loud and clear signal of huge injury and deaths occurring to, to the Americans, including pregnant women, including children. So that, that, was a, that was a big, big problem and big question for me. I couldn't answer it, but now I can.
1: And uh, so what did you decide to do? Uh,
0: so I wanted to investigate data for myself first. Uh, and I wanted to look specifically, because they have experience in uh, pharma manufacturing and good manufacturing practice compliance, I uh, looked at the data, not just at the total number of adverse events and deaths, but also how the, the, the pattern of the data across manufacturing lots or batches. So uh, all pharmaceutical products are manufactured in lots of batches. The lots are numbered. You can look at, you know, if you go to the pharmacy and buy Advil, uh, you can look on the box. It has a lot number. So those are the lot numbers. That can be recorded into the, in various reports when people submit the reports, um, and uh, they're not always there because um, people who are submitting the reports, which is you know either patients, their relatives, pharmacists, or doctors, uh, healthcare professionals, or nurses, uh, they don't always have that information. So you may not remember what was what was the batch number you were injected with. Uh, you may have you don't have your card with you, or the physician doesn't know. So, but in about 50% of the reports, uh, those those numbers are there, and so I was able to match those um, lot numbers with CDC lot numbers. I have a list of them, and uh, I was able to see that the, the not only the adverse events were high, but the variability of them by batch was extreme, absolutely extreme. So it what, was
1: explain that to me with the variability among them. Yeah. So,
0: so the variability meaning. Uh, how many re- total reports are submitted for a particular batch number? Mm. So, some batch numbers had two or three reports, um, and some had five, 6,000. That should never happen. You should never, s- if you think about it, if, you, if you're buying you know, Advil today, your experience, if you're buying it today and you're buying it a month from now, your experience a month from now shouldn't be 1,000% different because that's really dangerous. Even you know, if you think Advil is a safe medication or aspirin is a safe medication, or even if you buy an orange juice and you experience today and, and a week from now a thousand times or a thousand percent different, that's gonna be very dangerous. <laughs> you know, one of those instances is very dangerous. So when you see a variability like this uh, between batches of what is supposed to be consistently produced, good manufacturing practice compliant product, it means the product is not good manufacturing practice compliant. Mm. And I, as a, as a comparator, because I didn't have a baseline for this and I didn't have information, for example, of the batch sizes at the time, I do now, and the, the story doesn't change, uh, but at the time I didn't. So I, I, I thought I should compare it to something known and something known was flu vaccines. Mm. So I extracted all the data for flu vaccines from VAERS. And I looked how flu vaccine data looks batch to batch over a long period of time. And by the way, it's much more very, actually much more variety of producers making different sizes of batches. There are dozens of manufacturers of flu vaccines historically, and different sizes of batches. And for flu vaccines, it looks as as expected uh, for good manufacturing practice compliant product, which is straight line, very close to zero all the batches line up and just very, very little variability, just just a tiny bit. And then when you compare them to the, these COVID shots, that you can't even put them on the same graph. Flu vaccine data disappears because the COVID shots are variability is huge, absolutely huge, enormous. So I knew at that time, which was toward, you know, middle 2021, toward the toward fall of 2021, I knew for sure they were not good manufacturing practice compliant. Hmm. So we have not good manufacturing practice compliant product being produced, shipped in millions of doses, injected in millions of people, including pregnant women and children. We have uh, uh, CDC and FDA lying uh, and saying there is no signal at all. And this continues for a long time. And then eventually I ran across um, research by my now collaborator, Catherine Watt, um, she's done an incredible legal analysis of how the government and the healthcare agencies, are, what set of laws they're utilizing to enable this, hmm. to enable to subvert the good manufacturing practice compliance laws and be able to continue denying that there is any, any injury or any death or any problem occurring with, this, with these products for a long time, and this, this continues to date. What we found is the whole representation of what is happening is a lie. It's, it's basically the, the U.S. government is representing to the public that this is a health event and the response to a health event. But in fact, what, what they are doing is, um, this, is um, this is a military operation, these so-called vaccines, they're not really vaccines, but these injections are being manufactured under defense contracts, Uh, utilizing uh, Defense Production Act, um, other transaction authority, and emergency use authorization under public health emergency. So when these things are used together, then good manufacturing practices do not apply to these products at all.
1: Even legally?
0: Even legally, yeah. So there's there's this law on the books, 21 U.S.C. 360 BBB, that says Emergency use authorized countermeasures under public health emergency cannot constitute clinical investigation. So clinical investigation is actually not possible for these countermeasures. And if clinical investigation is not possible, then you cannot have clinical trials, you cannot have informed consent, Uh, You cannot have clinical trial subjects or clinical trial investigators. Mm -hmm. So the the, utilizing the structure of emergency use authorization, public health emergency, other transaction authority, defense production act, the government was able to um, uh, to commandeer pharmaceutical companies to produce these non-compliant injectable products and distribute them, calling them um, a medicine, where in fact, it's not a medicine. It's an act of war they're using Defense Production Act, machinery, um, United States military. Even internationally, this is being distributed from, from this military to overseas militaries, not pharmaceutical distribution chain. So they're using the military machinery to distribute these non-compliant products, including biologicals, chemicals, all kinds of ingredients we don't really understand very well, um, and call it public health and medicine.
1: first Mm -hmm. of all this sounds so fantastical (laughs) what you just said right what really that's crazy Mm
2: -hmm.
1: now one thing i know for sure is not crazy which is Mm -hmm. the the fact that it's the military that did the distribution—that's official.
2: Mm-hmm. That's
1: actually by—that's public knowledge. Mm-hmm. That was announced. Mm-hmm. I know people who are responsible for the distribution,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and they're very proud of doing the distribution mm-hmm. because you know it, it, they felt it was the only, I guess, structure in society that's able to deploy something like this fast enough, mm-hmm. right? And that that, that uh, mm-hmm. on, I have that on record mm-hmm. now. But what about this other? These other parts, mm-hmm. like that. This is this. This is actually the U.S. government. Contracting these pharma companies to develop mm-hmm. a countermeasure against what? Well, yeah. so
0: the countermeasure is a very important legal term, So, and I advise people to look it up. So, uh, it, the countermeasure, it's a very fuzzy term, first of all. So, anything can be a countermeasure. A lock on the door is a countermeasure against a break in. Uh, and uh, so, calling something a countermeasure, you already re- remove the precision of the legal definitions of a pharmaceutical, for example. So, but we know already it's not a pharmaceutical, um, and uh, also, you know, what I'm saying, you know, I, I'm, I'm not. It's not a conspiracy, <laughs> it, definitely not, because the law that I just described, this 21 U.S.C. 360 BBB, it's cited by everyone, including the FDA, in their documents, including by the manufacturers in their documents, uh, by um, GAO reports uh, that discuss this. Uh, recently, um, as you may know, uh, Brooke Jackson's False Claims Act case was dismissed. Um, the judge, you can read the dismissal of this case, the judge agrees with what I just said. He he agreed with the fact that Pfizer wasn't supposed to be compliant with good manufacturing practices per contract with the Department of Defense, that they were producing countermeasures, that they were producing large-scale manufacturing demonstration, which is how these things were ordered from the government. He essentially describes this in, you know, more sophisticated 100-page document.
1: Based on a contract.
0: Based on the contract that Pfizer produced. Pfizer produced their DOD contract, and since then, uh, 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 hundreds of uh, Department of Defense contracts for COVID countermeasures were released through FOIA, although they're partially redacted. Um, but I read a, l- a lot of them, and they're all online. Um, I read the Pfizer, Moderna ones, and some some other vaccines. Uh, and they're, they're all essentially similar. They're utilizing the structure of uh, ordering countermeasures, ordering prototypes, Department of Defense ordering it, from the pharmaceutical manufacturers under Defense Production Act, under other transaction authority. And um, the the good manufacturing practices are not part of it at all. So this product by statute and by contract with Department of Defense does not need to be compliant with good manufacturing practices. And then another additional part of this whole scheme is this public health emergency announcement. So, when public health emergency happens, essentially the executive branch of the government usurps the power from legislative and judicial. Uh, public health emergency, by various legal amendments and acts over a long period of time, has been created into this, um, um, I would say, trigger that triggers this whole system where the, the uh, HHS secretary becomes like a de facto dictator. So HHS secretary is the sole person on who, who can deploy these products in the United States. So FDA need not be part of it. Hmm. In the law, it says that HHS secretary, he or she, whoever that happens to be, used to, used to be Alex Azar, who, who was under Trump, and now it's Javier Becerra. Uh, they can determine whether these countermeasures can be deployed in the United States based on um, available data, if available, does not have to be available, and uh, based on his own determination about current risk-benefit profile and future risk-benefit profile. And again, he can take advice of whoever he wants to take advice, but the decision is up to him.
1: And so, that, so that's very interesting, because it's also counterintuitive. You're, if it's a DOD operation. Why is the HHS secretary responsible for the deployment?
0: In the structure of public health emergency, it's a militarized structure. So they, they merge and it's all executive branch. Hmm. So uh, HHS and DOD become kind of a one organization and they also wrap FDA In into terms it. of this operation. In terms yeah. of separation, right. yeah. Right. So, so the, the public health emergency becomes that trigger for essentially invoking all these military type of laws uh, saying that you know now that now they're now they're you know one organization uh, oh there's also inter interagency agreements that go into this um, where where they determine confidentiality determine how they're going to make these these um, countermeasures and so forth but the, so the HHS um, secretary deploys them DoD orders them um, they get funding uh, through the DoD, through BARDA. BARDA is, is is an HHS agency, but you know, so they're all like intertwined. And then FDA kind of rubber stamps everything and pretends that they're regulating these things, but they're not. They're impersonating regulators basically, because there's nothing in the law that says that FDA regulates countermeasures. They don't.
1: Um, yeah. But you would think someone would want to know. Let's mm-hmm. say I've had a number of people on this show who have had pretty serious vaccine injuries, for mm-hmm. example, and one of the sort of pieces of fallout from this mm-hmm. scheme that you're describing is that, you know, these the, the idea that these people could be harmed is kind of denied by society mm-hmm. and certainly denied by the authorities, not a hundred percent. There's admissions in the NIH and so forth that's rare, mm-hmm. right? But mostly they say there's no signal. Mostly they say this doesn't work. People are diagnosed with anxiety and things like that. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, and it seems this seems to be linked to this idea that this is somehow not a health response. I don't know what your thoughts are on this.
0: I understand why the government denies it. Clearly, I still can't wrap my head around denial of you know of this happening by regular, let's say, regular physicians. I, I know that there is a monetary structure that incentivizes this behavior. So there's definitely um, uh, payments from Medicare, Medicaid uh, for. To the doctors to vaccinate, uh, bonuses for numbers of vaccinations they administered, uh, bonuses, especially very high bonuses to vaccinate somebody who hasn't been vaccinated. So there's high price on the on the heads of people who haven't been vaccinated, to 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 get the injections in, uh, and to give boosters and so forth. So there's huge monetary incentive there. Um, also the the entire structure is. Essentially, the government extended its sovereign liability protection to everyone who complies with this system. So. Throughout this whole uh, structure of 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 producing these injections, distributing them, injecting them, then denying the injury, uh, there's a huge um, not only monetary um, compensation and incentive, but also liability protection through PREP Act, Mm -hmm. and that's explicit also in the uh, DoD contracts with um, vaccine manufacturers, and not just vaccines. Actually, it um, goes with entire COVID countermeasures uh, Mm -hmm. production, which includes vaccines, therapeutics, monoclonal antibodies, blood products, diagnostics, even masks and swabs and staffing and things of that nature. Uh, All of them have this clause that says PREP Act, um, liability exemption clause, which describes that if you're in compliance with all of this, then you're treated as a covered person under this act and you are exempt from liability if you essentially follow the orders. And the last sentence of that clause says that this is both civil and military application. This product is both civil and military application. And by the way, the contracts are redacted uh, with most common reductions. There are two reductions, uh, B6 and B4. B6 has to do with, uh, if we reveal this information, it hurts U.S. foreign policy or U.S. foreign relations and if, before, is if we re- reveal this information, we're revealing information about state-of-the-art uh, technology in the US weapons system. I'd like somebody to answer this. <laughs> I'm just listing a set of facts. You, know, you can make your own conclusions, but I'd like somebody um, you know, answer this question. Why and what is being put in these injections? What are people being injected with? Because we know um, there's huge amounts of deaths and injuries, but we can't address those injuries until we know what they were injected with. We still don't know that.
1: I mean, ostensibly, it's uh, you know mRNA, synthetic mRNA, in a lipid nanoparticle envelope mm-hmm. design. You know that uh, activates uh, production of synthetic spike in the body. Mm-hmm to create an immune response. I mean, it definitely does that, but what, there's more to it. I guess that's what you're saying. There's more right. to it than that.
0: So that's, that's what's claimed. You know, what you, you just said is claimed on the label of the product. Uh, but I, I've described before, we know for sure they're not good manufacturing practice compliant, which means they can't themselves verify to themselves that that's what they're making, right? So, so, so we, we, they're probably making that in some instances but there's also a whole bunch of other effects and varieties and by the way if the product is not good manufacturing practice compliant it's open to adulteration and falsification whether on purpose or accidental mm-hmm. so we have now the whole bunch of unknowns happening
1: right mm-hmm. you know i remember this scene where dr renata moon
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know opened up the mr i forget which one but it was one of the mrna vaccines co insert you know, as uh, Bobby Kennedy Jr. says, the one place where the vaccine companies tell the truth, mm-hmm. right? And she opens it up and all that's on there, it's intentionally left blank or mm-hmm. something close to that. Mm-hmm. I unsealed the box that the
2: entire thing came in and then I pulled this out. And this is what it looks like. So I'd like to show this to you. It is. Sorry about that. It's, um, it's blank. Boom, on the slides, and there it comes- is. It says intentionally blank
1: on it. That's the data that pharmacists and physicians are basing on giving the injections outside of mainstream media recommendations. There it is right there. Here's a good question. Why didn't they just print that on a piece of paper the size of a postage stamp? Why all the theater of folding it up into a great big piece of paper like like that? Why?
2: that's, that's, That's what's passing for informed consent.
1: Right. So how am I to get informed consent to parents when I have, this is what I have. I have a government that's telling me that I have to stay safe and effective. And if I don't, my license is at threat. Um, How am I to give informed
2: consent to patients? We're seeing an uptick in myocarditis. We're seeing an uptick in adverse reactions. We have trusted these regulatory agencies. I have
1: for my entire career up until now. Something is extremely wrong. To your point, um, you also have talked about the variation between the batches, you know, in some interpretations might almost look deliberate. And I found that Mm -hmm. to be very strange.
0: Yes, yes. This was one of the findings um, pretty early on um, when, when, and as, as I said, I was looking at the VAERS data and looking at the variability of adverse events and deaths per batch number. So in addition to seeing, first of all, huge um, adverse events and death rates overall, we, we saw huge variability batch to batch. But that variability was also not random, uh, meaning that it's not just that they're not, they don't control their process and they're producing random outputs. There is some sort of a design going on as far as what's in those uh, vials and different batches, because we saw clusterings, for example, by alphanumeric codes, both in Pfizer and Moderna, um, they, depending on the letters used in the, in the alphanumeric numbering, which should be just random, it should be just you know, some sort of a manufacturing scheme to keep track of things. Uh, but the, depending on the letters, we knew that this, this set of letters would produce higher toxicity and this set of letters would produce lower toxicity. That should never happen. Uh, we also had uh, clusterings by dates of manufacture. Also, should not happen. You should not have a difference between the product produced uh, on the first of the months or on the thirtieth of the months. Just you know, making an example. Uh, another, um, a colleague of mine from Denmark uh, was able to obtain. This was recently published in a peer-reviewed journal, uh, Journal of um, European Clinical Investigations he published this data. So he obtained um, data from the Danish government. Uh, Denmark was uh, Pfizer exclusive. Um, they got all the batch numbers for Pfizer and the adverse event uh, data. And he was able to uh, find um, three different patterns of toxicity. And they're cleanly separated from each other. Again, we have variability of toxicity, but it's also aligns in three patterns and there's nothing in between, meaning that this is not actually random, it's, it's by design. By design, they have three different levels, high, medium, and low, and the fourth one, meaning something as apparent as placebo um, because uh, th- those people who were injected and, and don't submit any reports, they don't have any adverse events. So, so we have at least four different levels of toxicity detected in the data from adverse events. And again, this should not happen. This should be explained. This should be investigation. And, and by the way, you know, everything I'm saying, you know, once you see some variability of data like this, this huge variability of the clusterings of data in various, um, by, by various uh, parameters, th- there are numerous um, different um, safety protocols that should be triggered at the manufacturer. Manufacturers themselves should detect it. Manufacturers should recall these products. You know, should stop the production lines and start investigations. That's what they do normally. Um, uh, the the government, you know, if, if the manufacturer is not doing anything about it, then FDA has all sorts of enforcement powers. They can also uh, force recall, force investigations. You know, we have all kinds of l- levels of protections, consumer protections that should be triggered with this picture long before, you know. <laughs> this, this extent of injury has occurred, yet none of them were triggered. None of them worked, so all of them fell apart simultaneously. And that's 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 you know kind of kills me. <laughs> like I I'm, I feel like I've been screaming for the last two years in the, at the empty space, and you know nobody's paying attention to
1: this. Have you experienced any blowback?
0: I tried to post this on a more um, mainstream social social media sites was immediately banned and and canceled everywhere I still can't get my Twitter account back I mean I can use it on laptop but I cannot have it on my on my phone Instagram deleted my art website it was hundred percent dedicated to art <laughs> you know it had nothing to do with this yet they banned it and they can never get Instagram back um, so yeah but other than social media censorship um, no not really
1: you've been in the middle of this industry the biopharmaceutical industrial complex as some people call (laughs) Mm -hmm. it right Um, and you're aware of its uh, size and power and Mm -hmm. so did you think at all twice about disclosing these things as you started you got curious but
0: I don't worry about it yes I know they're powerful yeah they, they can you know if they wanted to kill me they'll kill me but it doesn't concern me because I I think that the, the 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 evil that's unfolded in the last two and a half three years is unfathomable to most people and most people prefer to deny it than to deal with it and I don't want to deny it, and I, and I don't want to. I want people to have the knowledge that I do from my professional background, and I want them to understand what's going on uh, so that people can stop. And in fact, we have been successful so far because the uptake of these shots now is at zero, it's practically zero. There's huge distrust in the pharmaceutical industry, in the health authorities, people are questioning it. Uh, by spillover, they're questioning uh, childhood vaccination schedule, which I think is a great development. They should question it. Because um, people who are able to do this with these shots, well, where else are they lying? What else is going on? Mm -hmm. You have to question all of this. And so appropriately, people are becoming very skeptical, very concerned. Uh, protective of their children and I think it's a great development as far as justice and investigations and reform that should come I hope it will but that's that's going to take a long time but but at the moment I think everyone should understand what happened understand the truth and stop taking these injections
1: do you have a theory about what happened
0: that's you know pretty speculative the answer to answer this question to many people who are asking me why, and I say this, I I can't get in the heads of the criminals. Mm -hmm. I can just tell you that this is what they're doing. You know, I have the backup to everything that I just said in terms of facts, in terms of the laws that are being utilized, in terms of the uh, non-compliance that's evident, the injury, the deaths. It all ties together. Um, I can show you how they pre-plan this. Why they're doing it, we have to ask them. We have to put them on the stand and explain themselves.
1: Well, you know, one of the things I've been hearing a lot about is at the very least, a lot of accelerated research, for example, in applying this mRNA Mm
2: -hmm.
1: uh, vaccine technology to livestock, for example, and people are concerned that this will be something that'll enter the food supply. What are the ramifications? We don't know. Hearing everything you just said, right, it sort of adds an extra serious twist, right? If, this mm-hmm. is, if all this was created without the proper regulatory oversight, going far beyond the basic concept of U.A. Mm-hmm. basically that's what you're contending. Yeah. Why is it that this has now triggered, accelerated research into the deployment of such
0: mm-hmm.
1: products for livestock?
0: That's a great question. And it's not research, it's just deployment.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So,
0: because, you know, have you seen this, the speed with which they just said, oh, and now we're going to put in, into the food supply? Or, you know, recently the, the, the bivalent boosters, for example, were approved based on eight mice.
2: Right, right.
0: I mean, the, the, the insanity of what I just said, you don't need to, any other conspiracy theories to come through to just understand this. You know, if, if I told you five years ago, that there's going to be an injected product forced on every man, woman, and child in the United States, which was approved based on eight mice data. Do you think that I'm nuts? Well, yeah, and, and I would think that I'm nuts at that time. But this is the reality. This is what happened. And then they just, by diktat, they decided to, oh, now we're going to inject all cattle with this stuff. There was no studies. Nothing was tested. You know, they tested it on mice, but they're going to put it in cows.
1: I don't actually know the state of deployment, but maybe you can explain that. Well, to so me. they're
0: they're basically going uh, putting a bunch of money uh, in front of you know, cattlemen associations, agricultural uh, associations, and they're saying, well, no, now we're going to convert all the um, either either convert the previous cattle vaccines or just you know, new new mRNA shots for cattle. For what reason? what what does what the what is the emergency with cattle is there a pandemic of cows of some sort that we, we haven't heard of you know why all of a sudden they need to be injected with mRNA? and, and so somebody needs to answer that i don't know the answer to this so but mm-hmm. this is,
1: this has begun or it's, yes there
0: there there have been news reports that uh uh, at least some of the, you know, so there, there were going to be some uh, associations that are going to be uh, forcing, you know, cattlemen associations are going to be forcing this into the into the participants. Into their
2: membership. Memberships, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: And that this is gonna be regulated, that the, the cattle vaccines are supposed to be now mRNA for some reason. Uh, and also they're, um, they're going to convert um, traditional vaccines for humans, traditional childhood vaccines, and vaccines for other, like flu and um, RSV and um, some other indications also convert them into mRNA. And that's published in, in peer-reviewed journals. All so these plans that, you know, we're, we're working on all these COVID vaccines, you know, next we're converting all these vaccines into mRNA platforms.
1: Is it just a mania? Is it a, is it a mania about this? That everyone thinks it, so? they were so safe and effective. You know, there was this huge, Um, information Mm -hmm. blitz, right, Mm -hmm. about safe and effective, you're going to kill grandma if you don't take it. Mm -hmm. There are many, many pieces of messaging, billions of dollars spent on it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, my question in my mind, right, is just simply are just some people have, some people have just become kind of obsessed with Mm -hmm. this technology, because it's so great. We've been told it was so great and Mm -hmm. panacea.
0: Yeah, it's a great money-maker for certain people, uh, obviously. Uh, the, there, there's a lot of money has been thrown at it by the government. Um, and with the government also come the private investors because they co-invest frequently, you know, various types of investors, including private and you know, public funds and, and so forth. They see this, this spigot of money that opened in this direction. And of course, they all follow. Because you know it's such a great right,
1: that's just how it works. Yeah. Great bonanza, yeah.
0: um, and that so that of course creates a lot of financial momentum behind this. Mm-hmm. But scientifically uh, and you know technically, they're claiming it's so it's much easier to make these vaccines because it's by chemical reaction. It's, you don't have to grow any cultures and and so forth. So they're claiming it's also technically easier to manufacture. What I have not seen is any benefit of it. I only see injury.
1: Well. I mean, because these are, by all accounts, actually failed products. Mm -hmm. So it's surprising that this technology would be deployed broadly in many areas, or or even the interest for it to be deployed broadly.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're not only failed, um, they're also dual-use technology, has always been designated dual-use, meaning military and civil, just as they are stating in the PREP Act clause. Uh, it's been designated a dual-use technology since at least the 90s. Its current use is indistinguishable from its weaponized use because you can't really, as a consumer uh, or even as a manufacturer, it's very hard to uh, ensure that that code that you're coding is actually the correct code, uh, the, the mRNA code. In, a, in the vial.
1: Oh, I see. Yeah. I see. Right.
0: It's very easy to subvert it, to change it, to uh, introduce other codes, um, and um, to introduce other, let's say, nefarious types of pieces of code into it. And if you don't know what was introduced, you don't have an assay to test for it. So it's completely open to adulteration and falsification. And correct, they have never. The the technology has been in development since the 90s, Uh, but no products have come to the market out of it. No successful medical products because of all these problems I've described. The manufacturability of it is—you can't can't really make it consistently uh, in, in good manufacturing practice compliant, and it's wide open for these falsifications and weaponization type of approach. And it's also documented in a lot of literature, including NIH textbooks, um, military reports on bioweapons technologies. It's very well documented, this phenomenon. And so the use of it is indistinguishable between supposedly medicinal use that has never been demonstrated and weaponized use that has been demonstrated. And so that that is that that whole you know, obsession with this technology seems extremely mm, I say problematic to me, like very questionable. Somebody again has to explain how do you distinguish between weaponization use of this technology and what you claim is, um, you know, beneficial medicinal use?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Mm-hmm. So I I just want to clarify, when you're talking about the code,
2: Mm -hmm. you're
1: you're basically saying that the mRNA that goes into that technology that Mm -hmm. is then delivered via the way that the mRNA vaccines were delivered, that code is subject to change and you can introduce some other mRNA Mm -hmm. and you wouldn't even know to test for it if you didn't know what what was put in there. Yes. And since the whole system is a black box, Mm -hmm. it's very hard to actually track and
0: and and, assay for it and yeah assay for it verified and in fact it's been allowed by the regulators so another thing I haven't discussed yet but at the end of um, I I think you've also covered it in your publication at the end of 2020 there was a leak uh, from European medicines agency and uh, a bunch of documents were released uh, Pfizer manufacturing documents at the time of the approval and uh, a bunch of emails between EMA staffers that were discussing this and uh, in these documents it was clear that at the end of 2020 uh, the European Medicines Agency deemed uh, Pfizer not good manufacturing practice compliant it was number one objection from the regulators to their approval Uh, and two they found this issue of mRNA breaking down and creating um, uh, broken pieces of mRNA, right. the broken code. And at the time, uh, they, Pfizer told them that the standard for, for approval should be 50% of mRNA should be consistent with the declared code. And, and the regulators went along with it. So, because the product was, was approved in Europe within weeks of this discussion that, that was released. Um, so, 50% of a marinade should be consistent with the code that they declare for BNT 162B2. And then the, the other 50% is unknown.
1: Right. They lowered the standard. They
0: lowered the standard arbitrarily for themselves. And the regulators somehow miraculously agreed with that nonsense. But, which means that 50% is undeclared. 50% can be practically any sequence. It could be any designer sequence you can make. And if you made a designer sequence and didn't tell anybody what it is, well, how are you going to make assay to test for it? You right. can't.
1: Right, it just looks like another band.
2: In it the, just looks yeah.
0: like another band. It just looks like a piece of mRNA. We don't know what it codes for. Um, but you can introduce all sorts of different things into it. Hmm. And that's how you weaponize. And actually, that's, a, that's a described as a weaponization technique for gene therapies as a weapon by NIH book that was published. There's a whole chapter on this. There's a textbook online it's published in 2018. It's exactly how it's described. And that's exactly what they put into the approval. And that's what went on the market. Please, let's discuss this openly. Somebody has to explain to us, how are they determining that these vials are not the weaponized use of it but a medicinal use.
1: Any final thoughts as we finish?
0: Oh, I mean, thank you for <laughs> thank you for inviting me in the great conversation. I my my wish for this for this information is to be discussed, shared. You know, challenge it, please, please prove me wrong. You know, look at these documents, prove me wrong. But more importantly, I'd like some investigations to start, open investigations, public investigations. How? you know, answer, how can we answer these questions? Because this information will help people who are vaccine injured. Because if we answer these questions, we know what they were injured by.
1: Well, Sasha Ladipova, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you.
1: Thank you all for joining Sasha Latipova and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kelleck.